Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. It's Steph. It's uh, 8.47 on uh, October the 4th, 5th, Thursday, for sure. And I hope that you're doing well. I um, wanted to chat this morning. I'm going to take a short break from uh, yelling at people uh, and uh, cursing like a deranged sailor. Um, as I mentioned on the board, uh, I apologize for the profanity in the last couple of podcasts. Um, it is language that would make an old sailor's ears bleed. So I hope that um, it uh, it's, was okay with you and that you survived my salty tongue. But uh, I just don't think that I can credibly do a cop or a soldier with uh, a slightly British accent and erudite, well-chosen words. So I'd like to talk uh, this morning, take a break from that stuff, and I would like to talk about uh, this, this, this question, which I think is important to ask whenever you come across somebody and you, uh, you hear them say something, you hear them assert a truth. You know, there's a pretty fundamental question that I think is well worth asking them in this area. And the question is simply this. Is this something you were told or is this something that you have established for yourself through empirical observation? Is this something you were taught or is this something that you have directly experienced or, or have uh, empirically built up from evidence over time? And that's a very, very important question. And it's a continuum, of course. I mean, except for the fact that I believe that I'm driving and that gravity exists and so on. I have no problem with all of that stuff. And uh, I would say that I fairly much believe in uh, the theory of relativity. Uh, although, of course, I can't prove it myself. I don't have the mathematical ability. Or let's just say training. And there are other things which you can kind of reason from first principles. Uh, so, of course, I can certainly say uh, with some degree of uh, credibility that the government is force. Because I am fairly aware and have read about it and have seen it, of course. I'm fairly aware of what happens when uh, I don't pay my taxes, or if I don't pay my taxes. The, the consequences of that, let's say, have been made uh, relatively clear to me. So there are certain things that you can just sort of understand uh, based on your own direct experience and things, say, in that instance, threats which have been made to you. And there are other things that you simply have been taught as, as true, right? So, I mean... To take an example, or maybe a little slanted, but to take an example, you could say something like, well, it is, uh, it is something that I have uh, directly experienced, the, um, the threat of the state, right, the threat of the state of being arrested and so on. I actually, actually have, believe it or not. Um, this is uh, nothing too shocking. When I was 17, I bought some beer and, uh, got, uh, uh, and I also got uh, some beer for someone else, and that, of course, is supplying liquor to a minor, and so I was arrested, and I had my day in court, and so on. So, yeah, I do sort of understand the whole deal with the state, uh, and so that's something that I have sort of a direct experience of, so when I say the state is coercion, uh, I sort of, you know, I'm not sort of just, it's not something I was just taught. 
Now, I was taught that the state is virtuous, right? I was taught that the state is, is all about protecting me and caring for me like some infinite bureaucratic mom. Uh, the, uh, the state is, is all about uh, caring and virtue and, and dedication and nobility and so on. Uh, similarly, I do understand uh, that uh, pol uh, that uh, uh, soldiers uh, kill people, right? That that much I can sort of get a handle on. So that much uh, we we've got no particular issues with. Soldiers do in fact uh, shoot people, and we're all fairly comfortable with that uh, that basic idea. However, the virtue of soldiers is not something that I myself have directly experienced. In fact, having worked with a number of people who were sort of ex-military, I can tell you that I've experienced, you know, directly and empirically quite the opposite, that these people are not uh, virtuous, uh, that they are not uh, mentally healthy. And the idea that they represent some shining paragon of virtue is something that, uh, you know, I mean, cops, uh, cops and, and, uh, and firemen and, uh, and soldiers and so on, they're not even held to sort of ordinary moral standards in the way that you would hold an accountant, right? Nobody thinks that an accountant or, or uh, a, a bricklayer is some sort of hero for doing uh, what he's doing, that, he's, that the bricklayer just wakes up with uh, visions of how wonderful he's going to make everyone's house uh, from here to eternity, uh, that's not really how how we perceive bricklayers. We say, well, they get up and they want to eat, and they like, you know, they like having bricks around them as well as uh, laying them. So they go to work and they get a paycheck and they do uh, the bricklaying. But when it comes to uh, uh, soldiers, right, uh, and and cops and and so on, now even bureaucrats are not held to an enormously high standard when it comes to their moral natures, right? I mean, uh, we don't think, uh, we don't, when there are tireless civil servants uh, working and slaving day and night to make the world a better place for whoever, whoever, that much, you know, we all have as a, uh, a little bit of a metaphor. We don't really believe it as much anymore. I mean, it's sort of fairly important. We don't really believe that whole thing nearly as much anymore about the tireless civil servants who slave night and day to, um, you know, to make our, our lives better and so on. But we sure we surely do believe that with uh, things like uh, with you know, people like soldiers and, and and cops and firemen and so on, and and school teachers, right? And school teachers. And this is sort of why I picked on uh, these uh, people uh, to to begin with, right? This is sort of why I picked on this this category and politicians, right? There used to be this idea that uh, politicians and and we used to have this around priests as well. Uh, we used to have this idea that politicians uh, and priests were uh, you know, wise and kindly and concerned with our, uh, with the future of society and about building bridges to the 29th century and stuff like that. And fortunately, we don't uh, believe that as much anymore. I mean, we're going through, I mean, just sort of from a big picture standpoint, we're going through a disillusionment with the state that is pretty much the same thing that occurred when uh, Western society went through a disillusionment with religion as a whole uh, with the exception to some degree of America, but certainly Europe, went through a disillusionment with religion in the 19th century. This, uh, this is sort of a very fun, uh, sort of fundamental thing to understand about where we are as a society. In the 19th century, there was an enormous disillusionment with religion. And the enormous disillusionment in the West, in U Western Europe for the most part, with religion came about pretty simply. 
um, for you know thousands of uh, 1500 1800 to almost 2000 years and if you count the uh, old testament 5000 years uh, religion had been claiming to be a, a huge uh, benefit to mankind right i mean so uh, religion says we are the way we are the truth this is how the world will improve this is uh, how uh, this is what is this is how things get better uh, we are the way that human beings should think and should move forward and this is we are virtue we are all that is good and noble and true and so on and so on and so on and people got a little sick of that of course after the fragmentation of christendom after luther in the 16th century uh, after the fragmentation of uh, christendom from a sort of monotheistic catholic religion into all of the uh, crazed sects not that Catholicism was not and is not a crazed sect, but the um, uh, after it broke into you know the, the Calvinists, the Zwingalians, the uh, uh, the Lutherans, the you know all of these uh, the, the Quakers. Uh, after all of these sects uh, fragmented, and because of the unity of church and state, there was uh, hundreds, hundreds, and about hundred, hundred and fifty, almost two hundred years in some places of uh, religious wars that went on which were just savage in ways that we can barely imagine in the modern world. I mean, I know we have pretty brutal wars, and we have wars that kill a whole lot more people, only because the technology is better, and frankly, there's a whole lot more people to kill. But the kinds of uh, living hell that religious warfare turned the planet into is just savage. It's just absolutely savage. And the torture, the maiming, the disemboweling, the... Uh, oh man, you don't even want to know. People would beg for death. They would beg to confess to anything and beg for death, even though they knew they were going to hell because they just couldn't stand living uh, a split second longer. So, this kind of problem that occurred in the uh, in Western Europe was one of the reasons, of course, why the separation of church and state became a sort of a, uh, a necessity, right? So. Uh, in order to, uh, because so many people were dying, right, and as I've mentioned before, uh, there's a traveler who went through Europe in the 17th century, sorry, who went through Germany in the 17th and 18th century, 18th century, 17th, so sorry, and he said that uh, he had never, uh, he had almost never passed a tree by anywhere that didn't have at least one person hanging from it, right, because uh, somebody was offended by his or her religious sensibilities. This was equal opportunity genocide from a religious standpoint, and uh, so what happened was people began to realize that with the unity of church and state, this kind of genocide was just going to continue and uh, human life was going to remain you know, fundamentally unbearable uh, from here until the end of time. And so they began to look at working to separate a church and state. And what they had to do was they had to give up, of course, to separate church and state you have to give up the um, uh, a belief in the uh, general veracity of the Bible, right? I mean, you have to give up literal interpretation of the Bible, uh, which clearly says that rulers, secular rulers, are put there by God, and none shall tear them asunder, and none shall you know, any any offense against them is an offense against God, and any rebellion against them is a rebellion against God, and you know all of the uh, parasitical uh, evils that intellectuals generally fill people's minds with in order to draw crumbs of gold from the pillaging of the uh, of the rulers on the general population so the uh, the idea that uh, the bible was just another story began to sort of percolate 
around uh, uh, sort of during the uh, late Renaissance and, and particularly in the Enlightenment that, yeah, there may be a god, but let's not to get so invested, so heavily invested in these kinds of fairy tales. Let's just say that God is a, uh, you know, a spiritual, personal, it's a personal thing. It's a personal thing, right? So in order to put God down as a personal thing, you have to do an enormous amount of injustice to the, uh, you know, fundamentalist Bible is always true perspective. But of course, they were willing to do that because they were kind of sick of getting, getting tortured and killed. And of course, it wasn't just the wars. It was all of the associated uh, horrors that go along with wars, like starvation and all this kind of stuff, right? So there was uh, an enormous number of problems that were occurring in this realm. And so what had to happen was they began to sort of separate church and state, which meant repudiating the universal validity of the Bible and so on. I mean, it's because fundamentally the priests and organized religion as a whole had proven itself so fundamentally unable to rule people's lives that people began to sort of question the universal validity of organized religion, right? So you got the rise of deism and certain forms of atheism and radical skepticism and in the 19th century, of course, nihilism. But what happened first was that people just said, okay, let's do the separation of church and state. And from there, we'll sort of hope that things at least return to where they were in the early Middle Ages, like in the Quattrocento or the, the Dark Ages or whatever. Let's, let's at least hope that we can return to that, you know, where we only had the Black Death to worry about, not so much uh, human beings uh, or torture and so on. Now, what happened then was after the separation of church and state, and there was a lot more that we won't need to get into here that was involved in the rise of capitalism, but after the separation of church and state, society completely and totally flourished. There's a very, very important thing to understand. And we don't we haven't really lived through this. We're kind of living through the reverse with the state. But but it's very hard for us to really understand what this means. Right. So if you have uh, a group which claims the absolute perf perfect moral right to order everyone around like organized religion, and then you uh, and they say, well, we have to have the power of the state. Otherwise, you know, because you're evil. And uh, all the bad things that are in the world, that, that, that come from you, from you sinners. We are morally better. You are evil sinners. And we need to order you around because we're good and you're evil. Well, when the power of that group is then curtailed, and, and curtailed in a way that was unprecedented in human history, and curtailed in a way that we almost can't comprehend. I mean, the next curtailment of corrupt power that will be comparable to the separation of church and state will be the elimination of the state. There's really nothing else that could be as great a shift in hierarchical, hegemonic, organized power. You know, you could talk about the, the family and so on, but that's a little bit more personal. So, in the um, uh, if, if, if this group says, we're perfectly moral, you're perfectly evil, and you must submit yourselves to us so that you can be better off, when this group is... Uh, is their power is largely taken away from them. And yes, of course, there was still organized religion, but it had almost no power relative to what it had during the uh, unity of church and state. I'm also aware there's lots of gray areas here. There wasn't a perfect separation of church and state in God we trust, uh, create, endowed by our creator, blah, blah, blah. But still, it's a, uh, you know, to me, it's like you get rid of the state. Yes, you'll still have condo boards and stuff like that and DROs, but uh, the, um, the fundamental uh, power 
of religion to uh, command the troops of the uh, secular rulers to uh, enforce religious edicts was largely taken away. And what happened then was not what the priests and the popes and so on had predicted, which was, I mean, <laughs> you know, how could it get any worse, right? <laughs> like that Monty Python, making it worse? How could it be worse? But uh, if you, you certainly couldn't get worse than the religious wars of the uh, 16th, 17th, early 18th century. You just couldn't get any worse than that. There was no, there's no possible planet that could be worse to inhabit than that, that planet. So, in a sense, you know, society kind of has to change when it has nothing to lose, right? That's sort of something too important to understand. We can maybe talk that about, about that another time. That's well known in addiction treatment circles that uh, people really only change when they have nothing left uh, to lose. That's when they, uh, you know, uh, the, when, you, when you're face down uh, in, a, in a gutter in Vegas with three cents in your pocket and you've just impregnated four strippers uh, and you have herpes or syphilis or something, you know, that's when maybe you'll say, okay, maybe I should cut back on the drinking and you'll go and seek help. Very few uh, people will do it before that kind of extremity. And I put myself in that category, as I talked about on, on Sunday. Not a drinker, but um, uh, susceptible or addicted to propaganda regarding family. But what, uh, what happened then was that uh, these people who said, if you take away our power... Uh, the world will become a living hell and you will all be damned to hell in the afterlife forever. What happened was when the power of this group was curtailed, of organized religion, then society flourished. Society flourished. I mean, it's, it's hard to even communicate how jaw-droppingly, shockingly astounding this was. But it's kind of like if you're a, you're a cancer patient and uh, people keep telling your doctor and every all the doctors in the world keep telling you that if you stop doing chemotherapy, you're going to die. And if you, you end up stopping doing chemotherapy against all historical precedent, against every single judgment of every doctor in the universe and every expert and every one, you stop doing chemotherapy and not only do you find that you're not that you don't die, but you don't even have cancer. That it was the chemotherapy was the only thing making you sick. And that you are healthy and vital and recovered to a kind of health once you stop with chemotherapy that you didn't even have before you were diagnosed with this supposed cancer. I mean, how would you feel about your doctors who are prescribing you all of this sick stuff for their own profit that just makes you ill? And when you decide not to do it, you become incredibly healthy. I mean, wouldn't you just be absolutely shocked and appalled beyond words? Well, this really was the state, uh, the situation, I'm going to use the state. This really was the situation in, um, uh, in, uh, in 19th century, uh, 18th to 19th century Western civilization, with the, to some degree, exception of America. And... That is just something, I could sort of spend a whole podcast on it, but I won't because I'm sure you get the idea. That's something that's just a fundamentally impossible to understand for people uh, now, what, what a shock that was. But that's exactly where we are beginning to be. We are at the beginning of that process 
when it comes actually you know what I think we're more than the beginning at the beginning of that process we're further along uh, and what has occurred for us is that we actually are beginning to look at the state and I don't just mean libertarians I really I don't just mean libertarians uh, we are beginning to look at the um, the state in the same way that people were beginning to look at religion in the um, uh, in the sort of 17th, 18th, uh, and particularly 19th century, we are beginning to have enor enormous doubts about the moral falsehoods that are being offered to us in uh, by the state. We are beginning to we are beginning the process of starting, just starting, to work empirically rather than just listen to propaganda. I mean, the idea that everyone's lying to us is obviously a pretty unnerving idea to most people, and I can, you know, I can understand that, and it, uh, lying is a difficult word to use in the realm of propaganda, because it's propaganda, right, and it's universal and, and so on, right? I mean, was everybody lying when they said that the world is flat in the 14th century? No. Uh, even though some people knew differently, uh, it was just such a generally accepted wisdom that, you know, a kid who's raised in a cult or a kid who's raised in Stalinist Russia, are they lying when they say, is the Stalin kid lying when he says, uh, yes, uh, uh, communism is good? Well, it's tough to say, right? It was raised in pure propaganda, so it's, uh, it's complicated. But I think, I mean, I've sort of found in general that in the conversations that I have with people uh, outside of my car, um, that we are beginning to doubt the state in the way that we began to doubt religion in the uh, 18th, 19th century. Particularly in the 19th century, things can went kind of haywire, as Nietzsche sort of talked about, the God is dead stuff. Things got a little crazy there for a while. And what happened was, because, uh, because the family is such uh, a brutal superstructure, for the most part, uh, for children, uh, what happened in general was that when religion was taken away, there was a power vacuum in people's minds. Uh, external, secular, hierarchical, religious, uh, whatever hegemonic structure exists, exists largely to justify and normalize the initial brutality of the family, right, of your parents. And so because your parents are brutal, you then need an external hegemonic hierarchical authority to justify your uh, justify your parents and avoid the pain of having to deal with parental abuse when you are um, when you're an adult, right? You you go and search for this kind of uh, structure to sort of plug yourself into so that you don't have to avoid the pain of the uh, diminishment that occurred to you at the hands of your parents' bullying, right? The sort of a fundamental fact about power that it doesn't just arise out of nowhere. Uh, it arises, uh, power in a political or even a religious sense, arises because people are abused as children in one form or another. And we've, I've gone into this before, so I, you know, uh, don't uh, don't misunderstand me when I talk about abuse. I don't just mean sort of beatings and, and uh, you know, sexual abuse and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about a lot more pervasive and subtle kind of stuff uh, that occurs as well around, uh, well, and you can go and listen to the previous podcast. No point in me going into all of this again. But 
what happened was, and Nietzsche kind of got this, as, as you would imagine, he was the son of a Lutheran minister, so uh, as, uh, as I believe uh, so was a Marx, right? So these people knew something about uh, power, right? I mean, having been raised in this kind of environment, they uh, were fairly down with the whole uh, abuse of power thing. And Nietzsche quite, predictly, uh, quite correctly predicted, of course, that when, uh, when God is dead uh, and God has, uh, God has died largely because we, ha we are flourishing as a society in the absence of centrally coercive and organized religion, <clears throat> when uh, God is dead, uh, human beings don't immediately evolve. Family structures don't immediately evolve. And when people, when the state gets to, sorry, when religion gets to such a bad situation, when you look around in the sort of 17th uh, century and say, okay, universal murder, genocide, torture, starvation, this is where the kings and the, the, the priests have led us to, right? This is, you know, after all telling us they were essential and uh, that, that they would make everything better, this is sort of where they've led us to. So let's, uh, let's limit the power of the state and let's uh, separate the church and the state. And then society flourishes as a whole. Uh, when that uh, when that occurs, it's not like the family structures change, right? So everyone's always sort of like, why is it then when human beings get one, rid of one form of power, they always invent another form of power, and that's because of the problem of parenting, right? The problem of not having um, rational uh, parents. <clears throat> so you uh, in the in the nineteenth century, they got rid of the uh, the sort of fundamentally and psychologically, they got rid of the uh, idea. Of religion as a positive force, uh, in, in talking in general in, in the intellectual circles, not uh, you know the, the sort of common the common man. And the reason that they that they originally got rid of, like you originally will stop drinking because you're face down in the gutter, uh, you've lost your wife, your house, your kids, impregnated the strippers, and you you have no money, right? So at that point you say, oh my God, I don't know what I got to do, but holy crap, have I ever got to stop drinking? Right, so that's that's sort of your your feeling, and that's sort of what happened with religion in uh, in in Europe after the religious wars, um, and then what happens is you you kind of quit, right? You quit drinking, and your life gets immeasurably better, and then you you really do have an appreciation. Like it, originally, you you want to keep drinking, you just can't take it anymore. Like physically, you just you can't take it anymore, and. So you want to quit, sorry, you want to keep drinking, but you, you physically, you just can't take it anymore. And that was really the first stage of the end of religion as a uh, sort of believable uh, paradigm within the Western mind, you know, the virtue of religion, the virtue of priests and so on. And what happened then was society got like immeasurably better. And what that meant was that people uh, really got what uh, horrible uh, falsehoods and predations and corruption and evil had been uh, played upon mankind by the priests and by the kings and, and the queens and the priestesses if you go back to ancient Rome, ancient uh, Athens. But this is a pretty important uh, thing uh, to get, right? There's sort of two stages of ending an addiction. The first is, oh God, I just can't take it anymore. And the second is, holy crap, is my life ever so, so, I mean, infinitely better. Before I was going down, now I'm going up, up, up. So, you know, I thought alcohol was my friend, and uh, it's still your friend when you quit out of desperation, but it's just a friend you can't take anymore. And afterwards, you realize what an impossible uh, and brutal enemy religion, uh, alcohol was in your life. And that's sort of what happened with the, uh, the in the 19th century, they kind of got the second round 
of breaking free from an illusion and an addiction. Now, they didn't uh, get to the point that they began to really look at uh, the family structure and the family histories, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of an, it's an obvious thing once you see it, but it seems to be very tough for people to see. So once you get that every human being's first experience with authority is with the family, uh, with the parents, and that the family or the parents have greater authority over children than any other agency except perhaps for a, um, a torturer or a prison guard will ever have again, uh, over a human being uh, further along in life. So the fact that everything starts with the family is something that people don't like so much, right? So what happened was because the family structures, and particularly in the 19th century, compared to today, of course, right? I mean, um, the poisonous pedagogy, as Alice Miller calls it, or the violence uh, and uh, control and uh, dismissal of children was uh, pretty significant. And so in the, uh, uh, in the 19th century, you got rid of even the illusion that religion had ever been virtuous, right? right? It's like, oh, we can't take it right now. We've just got to do this out of desperation. And then when you begin to flourish, you go, oh, my God, right? And you might say, i got to stop chemotherapy because I just can't take it anymore. And then the moment you stop chemotherapy, you start to feel a whole lot better. And your doctor says, no, 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 that's just a false effect, right? But then you sort of say, you know what? I'm going to roll the dice. I'm just not going to go back to chemotherapy. You get healthier and healthier very, very quickly. And then you end up enormously healthy uh, and vibrant and powerful and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, you're going to stop out of desperation because you just can't take it anymore, but uh, then you're going to begin the process of um, uh, really understanding what uh, evil had been wrought upon you by this sort of, I'm not saying chemotherapy is false, but if it were, right, by this false uh, virtue of chemotherapy. And it's not even, chemotherapy is, is not even close to what we're talking about because uh, we're talking about a virtue here, uh, not just a procedure to keep you alive. But... Um, so what happens then in the, in the 19th century is people really begin to believe or begin to understand the evil that had been wrought on them by the priests and by the kings. Uh, and what happens in, in sort of emotionally and psychologically is that people then begin to get closer to the idea that uh, authority is, is, is invalid. Right, that hierarchical authority is invalid. And what that does is it begins to bubble up an enormous amount of childhood pain which they experienced due to what was happening with their parents. And people don't want to face that pain. Like fundamentally, they don't want to face that pain. They want to continue to believe in the innate virtue of family. And again, I'm not uh, trying to say that family can't be virtuous. I'm just saying that family as a, um, a concept has no such thing as virtue, right? Anything more than a crowd uh, has a bowel movement, right? <laughs> or a crowd has virtue or, or vice. So, I mean, people can have virtue and vice. Categories cannot, right? Uh, uh, a, uh, a white guy can be good or bad, but whites as a whole can't be good or bad because it's just a concept which we've talked about in the history of philosophy or the introduction to philosophy series. So family has no moral content, and so it's important to understand that uh, people are told their whole lives that the family is all about them and the family is good when the family is not good uh, because we are still in our infancy as a species with regards to ethics so there's really no possibility for families to be moral because moral is something that we're just kind of vaguely beginning to get get the hang of 
absent of secular, sorry, central sort of authority as regards to morality, but working empirically and logically. The science of morality is barely out of the womb. And so when we look at the flourishing that occurs when we get rid of religion, we begin to go, oh my God, maybe authority is bad, right? Because that would be the general principle by which you would understand that process, right? Maybe authority is bad because I, um, uh, when we got rid of religion, everything got better. And that's, um, that's a little unsettling for people, right? Maybe authority is bad. This doesn't mean that children shouldn't have any disciplinary. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about maybe authority is not virtuous, right? Because when we got rid of the church and we got rid of the kings, things got uh, immeasurably better. But people have a great deal of emotional problems with the idea that authority is, is, uh, is evil. It's, it's a principle, right? Because that really goes back to their family, the, themselves, their own situation. Uh, it's much more personal, right? When you get the principle that authority is evil, uh, by that I mean coerced compulsive authority, uh, non-reciprocal authority, and particularly, sort of most fundamentally, morality, uh, authority which uses the argument for morality in a false and hypocritical manner. That is the central corruption of authority, right? Even if your parents didn't beat you, right, if they told you stuff was wrong that uh, they themselves uh, did or supported, right, if violence is wrong, but you should obey the state, right? Whatever it is that you're taught, uh, that sort of false and hypocritical argument for morality, that's the sort of fundamental corruption that goes on in the realm of family. So in the 19th century, they kind of ditched religion and they then were left with this uncertain or unsettling question, which is authority is bad. Now, when you start to work with the principle that authority is bad, then it's really dizzying. It's really a frightening, terrifying thing emotionally, because then it's like, well, all authority is bad, right? All authority is bad. That's that's really unsettling for people, and, and rightly so, and understandably so. And what happens then is that people panic, and they need a new authority. They say, rather than face their own histories, rather than face their own childhoods, they say, okay, well, it's not, it's not that, that, it's, that authority was bad, but another authority is good, right? This is to rescue the parents, right? It's to rescue the virtue of the family. Some authority must be good. Because if all authority is bad, then my parents were bad and lied to me. And my social circle is bad, my friends are bad, and of course, since these things generally get discussed in a public sense uh, when, by people who are older, then the question is, am I bad, right? Because these people have had kids by this point, right? So they've, they've enacted out their own uh, hypocrisies and, and falsehoods on their own children. And so then it becomes a very hard thing for people to be able to look in the mirror and say, yeah, authority is bad, and I, can't, I can get angry at other things, but first and foremost, I need to deal with my own history of uh, cor uh, corrupting authority with regards to my wife or with regards to my children or with regards to my husband. I mean, it could be, you know, it could be either way. But this is a very hard thing for people to accept and to, to go with. Very, very difficult emotionally very hard so they uh, they say okay well some virtue some authority is good but that authority was bad now of course if some authority is good then they're going to have to reproduce their uh, family structures once more in society as a whole to justify both their parents and themselves 
in terms of their own exercise of authority. Right? So you have, I mean, with, there was an example of John Lennon, right? Whose father was this brutal merchant seaman who left when he was five years old. His mother handed him over to his aunt and stuff like that. And he became a communist, of course. He won't deal with his own history. He himself became, I think he hit his wife, Cynthia, at least once. So he himself became uh, abusive and became a communist, right? And this is entirely predictable, right? As I'm going through this sort of stuff here. You can get rid of one authority structure, but you will forever be regenerating new ones unless you deal with your own family history, right? This is why authority is, uh, is so hard to get rid of. So, in the 19th century, they got rid of religion, and they created a huge power vacuum in the minds of, of men and women. And so, of course, they go to the state. Because the state has been rendered less evil due to its uh, diminishment of power, Religion has been revealed as a cancer on the soul of man. And so then they go, wow, okay, so authority is still good because of our own family histories and our own behavior as parents. Authority must still be good, but boy, that authority was really bad. Right? That, that religious authority was really bad. And so then you have to pick another, another uh, um, collective, right? another concept that is going to be dominant in, uh, in your life, in your mind, right? You can't, simply can't accept that, that authority is bad. And so you, you ditch the church and you raise the state in its place, right? I mean, this is the whole history of the 19th and 20th century. Now, there are some people who combine the state with other things like uh, the state, the, state, uh, the, the uh, totalitarian state plus the idea of class uh, then becomes communism, the, um, uh, the state... Uh, plus nationalism becomes fascism, the state plus race becomes Nazism. So there's, you know, there's always some other thing. There's always some argument for morality around the state. But something has to take the place of, unju uh, of, of unjust power if power is still viewed as just in some way. And so what I'm sort of talking about is that we are sort of now beginning to have a look at the injustice of the state in a sort of clear way people are sort of seeing, as somebody said at work the other day, which was quite surprising, uh, privatize the state, right? It's sort of a very interesting phrase. And it's why I was, I was sort of talking a little bit about my ideas, but not very much. This was sort of his, uh, his contribution, which I thought was very cool and uh, very, very smart. So nobody really believes in the virtue of state anymore, except those who claim to based on the fact that they're paid by the state, like public school teachers and, and professors and so on. And so we're kind of in that situation where people are beginning to work, like the empirical evidence is piling up to the degree that people are just getting, go, getting uneasy and going like, holy, you know, I don't know what's going to fix it, right? Now, they can't really go back. I mean, in the States, they are to some degree, but most people can't really go back to religion. That's already, that's already been discredited. And uh, there's a certain amount of embarrassment about the idea that we should uh, believe in religion, certainly in, in Europe, Western Europe, that's very much the case. So you know, where are we going to go? Well, it's sort of my particular belief that one of the reasons I talk so much about the family is that when we begin to be disbelieve in the last blood-soaked and corrupt, uh, corruption-laced fantasy of the virtue of power, when we begin to finally uh, look at that stuff more clearly, then we actually have the opportunity to switch the light on in the whole, like switch the lights on in the whole house, right? Because we keep switching one light on and the, 
power then slips to another room and then we go to that room and then it slips to another room and then it goes back to the first room. So we keep trying to nail this jello of understanding power to the wall, so to speak, in, in our minds. And what is, I think, a, a valid way to understand it now is that we're actually getting to the point where we can see power directly for what it is and it, it in a sense it has no place to go like if we displace power if we begin to suspect power from that the power of the state is bad then there's no particular place for power to go uh, and that's so we can finally look at the real source which is uh, the source of corruption in society which is the family anyway i hope this has been helpful uh, i will uh, try and finish off the idea of empiricism versus uh, inherited ideas uh, a little bit later thank you so much for listening as always I can't see. There it is. I'll talk to you soon.